Uh, this is Ian Harvey, Tokyo U.S. brand manager. I'm here with Torn Coos. Torn has represented the United States 76 times in World Cup, World Championship, and Olympic competitions. His best individual international result was a third place in Otapa, Estonia Classic Sprint in 2007. Torn also finished fourth in the Dusseldorf Germany World Cup team sprint with Andy Newell in 2008. Torn has 34 top 30 individual results in World Cup and World Championships. He's won the U.S. National Championships seven times and the Canadian Championships once, not, in, not counting sprint relays, which he's, he won a number of times as well. Remark, remarkably, his championship titles came in the form of six sprint races, a 30K classic mass start, and a 50K skate mass start. Torn retired from full-time racing and training after the 2014 season. This four-time Olympian now lives in Lausanne, Switzerland, and is, and is 40 years old. Since 2016, Torn has overseen the media and communications for the International University Sport Federation. It's my pleasure to, to have, do this interview with you, Torn. We're old friends. Um, I've supported you, I think, ever since you were 14. And um, we had a long-standing cooperation as well as friendship. And it's great to see you. I haven't seen you in quite a while. It's, uh, it's great to be here, Ian. Uh, usually, I like to be on the other side of the, of the, of the camera or the podcast. So, um... But for you, I had to make an exception. So, so thanks for the opportunity. I appreciate the outfit. Um, I didn't tell you, uh, you know, what the what the wear was in a formal, casual, whatever. And I see you took no risk in being underdressed. So that's great. I appreciate it. Yeah. Well, I just moved in, so you know, my Toco gear it's uh it's in boxes right now. So it's uh it's I'm a work in progress. But uh, you know, I got to keep the the nice clothes uh, nice and handy every once in a while. Sometimes uh, the way a person dresses going into a, an appointment or an interview reflects the the respect they have for that person. In that case, I appreciate the compliment. Thank you. Of course, Ian. I wouldn't, I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't, I wouldn't dress any less than this for you. <laughs> You're just missing a top hat. <laughs> <laughs> I can work on that for next time. <laughs> okay. Hey, Jordan, let's talk about where you grew up and how you started ski racing. Yeah, so I mean, I was born in the Twin Cities, but uh, really I would consider my hometown uh, the Cascade Mountains, in particular Leavenworth, Washington, where I grew up and went to elementary school, middle school, high school. It's a pretty cool place, a really small town. It was a, uh, you know, a logging town that kind of had to rediscover its, itself. So I really felt like a real connection to the, to the mountains, to the place. Um, and it was really a, a great place to grow up where I could really grow up with like free range uh, parenting going on, and, you know, mountain bike, uh, playing the river. And uh, yeah, so I just was able to, I guess, enjoy sport and be with friends and parents didn't have to worry too much about me. Um, you have a ski family, right? Your family has a ski history and that probably had something to do with you kind of starting skiing at a young age. Yeah. So we started, I started quite young, you know, in, uh, you know, probably two, three years old. We were living in Seattle at the time, come over, over into the Cascades on the weekends. And, um, my dad was a biathlete like you, uh, my mom grew up skiing, uh, in the, she lived right next to the University of Minnesota campus and she would ski onto campus and leave her skis in her, her dad's uh, office, who was a, a dean there on campus. And so I guess it's some, some parts of some parts racing and some parts just a, a way of life. So. Um, so can you talk about when you were a junior or a young kid, did you have many mentors that kind of helped you along when you were skiing? Yes, yeah, so, I mean, the first person, like, my, my coach from the beginning uh, was 
TJ Owen. Um, she came over from Norway, Oslo, Norway from, went to, went to University of Wyoming and then, you know, fell in love and has been in America ever since. And, uh, and she was my, my, almost my neighbor. And so even when I was young, like second, third grade, I had a very rambunctious, uh, uh, dog and, uh, and she had a Hungarian Vishla that needed to run quite, quite often. So it just started, you know, from just going for, for runs with, with the dogs and the, in the foothills and just from there. So I would say, you know, TJ has been there from, from, from day one. And from there, you just build up uh, really cool people in the ski, ski community that, uh, that become part of your life forever. And even if they're a long ways away or they're, they're nearby as well. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So I'm curious if you remember when we met the first time or our first contact that, that you have with me and then I have with you. Yeah, so I mean, the first time I, I definitely remember uh, I was at the local ski shop, Der Sportsman, very apt name for a place in Leavenworth, and uh, and there was a Jermina ski uh, a brochure there, and uh, I think it had a card in the back with your name on it, and uh, and uh, I don't know, I, I took it and uh, and wrote you a letter and said, you know, I, I, I would love to find that letter actually and and, and see what it said, but um, not so long after that, I had some some very neon skis from 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 germany and uh they're still kicking around my mom still skis on them she loves them and uh, i skied a couple of junior nationals on them uh yeah so i have very i mean you put me on probably my first real race skis ever and so i remember that but i also remember the first time i saw you which was i think about a year or two later and that was we had what we called at the time the yoko fist series that's when i was doing yoko gloves and the race was in Spokane, Washington, and I was standing on the finish show, and it was an early season race on a quite a difficult course. And this was a classic race. I can't remember if it was 10 or 15K. And most people were finishing in a kind of a manner that was exhausting or exhausted. You could see how tired they were. And you came ripping around the corner, and the, and the finish had kind of a, a switchback climb to the finish, and you double pulled the entire thing. And you double pulled it really fast and with dynamic technique. And I remember thinking you were 14 at the time. And I went right from there, blew off the rest of the race. At that point, it was more or less the end of it. But I went and uh, looked up uh, Laura McCabe, who I knew, knew you, and asked her who the heck you were. And she told me, and I remembered the name. And then I believe from that point forward, I supported you also with gloves. Which so it, was good, it, was a, it was a good race because it kept me, you've been keeping my hands warm uh, for 25 years since then. I mean, so that's, uh, that's really cool. Yeah. Yeah. There aren't too many athletes. I've, I've done that maybe five times in my career has identified someone that young. Usually I, I leave juniors alone because I don't want to mess with their ego. You know, that can be a dangerous thing to support a junior unless they're on the international level. Um, but in your case, I knew that you were going to be there. And I thought this guy's working hard and obviously really talented. So that was cool. That's, uh, that's cool to hear. Ian, um, one thing, though, like when I was a junior, I was not the, the, the best skier. Um, actually, even when I went to look to ski in college, I was definitely interested in, you know, skiing NCAAs. And uh, I didn't get recruited anywhere. I didn't get any scholarships. Um, but the University of Utah let me walk on to their ski team and uh, got a scholarship for, for running. So, um, yeah, I was definitely not uh, the, the, the brightest, uh, brightest star in the, in the room. Yeah, you say that, but it was obvious to me that you had rare talent. So, you know, yeah. uh, results be damned. <laughs> and yeah, yeah, exactly. also, when you're 14, your results don't count for anything anyway. Completely yeah. nothing, you know. That's a mistake I think a lot of people make. But um, 
it doesn't mean anything. You're either an earlier bloomer and that's probably a curse or you're a late bloomer and the results are coming. You got to work for every second, then you grow and then you, you kill it, you know, so. Hey, yeah, so if, it, if there's any, you know, juniors out there, you know, just know that if you're ninth, 10th, 17th at junior nationals, um, I mean, yeah, things can, you can make big, big strides, especially in your teenage, early 20 years uh, when, when, when you get things all going down the track in, in the right way. That's for sure. Hey, let's talk about the rest of your high school time, including your foray into Norway and tell, tell us just what, what, what your experiences were there. Yeah, so my senior year of, uh, of high school, I remember, uh, yeah, I, got, I had the opportunity to go to Norway. So I went to high school there. It was in Meroker, which is just outside of uh, Trondheim, um, the Trondlag region, and right across the border from, from Ora, Sweden. Um, it's also a ski gymnasium, and uh, it was a handball gymnasium as well. So, um, yeah, I went there for about six months, uh, knew about four words of Norwegian before I hopped on the plane. It all came together super, super quick, and... Uh, it was a, definitely an eye-opening experience, very, actually very challenging. Um, but from that, like when I went to college the, the next year, it was like everything was on easy street. It was, it was like I'd survived living in a foreign country by myself, not knowing the language when I first landed. Um, back then, the, the ski club, the, the school itself was really super strong, but the ski club itself was, uh, didn't have like so much support for the athletes in the local area. So everybody raced for their, their local clubs. And so come, come weekends, everybody, all the, the kids would bounce out of town and I'd be like trying to take a train or, you know, bum a ride to some ski race in, in Norway and wax my skis sometimes all by myself. Um, so it was like, it was, it was a challenge, but uh, it, it made me grow up so fast uh, that it, it put me on a good place to, to then improve a lot in, in skiing from thereafter. If I remember correctly, um, Everson is a member and grew up in that club. And also, um, they had World Cup events last spring there, just to, to jog some of the listeners' memory. So tell us about what was so challenging about that year. I, obviously, living in a foreign country with a foreign language without any family anywhere is challenging in itself. But can you uh, elaborate on that? Well, I mean, it was, it was great. So I, mean, I just meant, uh, yeah, with the challenge, yeah, it's just, you know, first you had to, it, it was pretty cool because the, everybody like took you in and you're kind of a novelty, especially back then, you know, and, and uh, a cross country skier from, from, from the U S and yeah, I, I think it was just, just really trying to get to the races and, and do the races. And um, it was also a big step up for me in the number of hours training. And, you know, I think I was more kind of like the traditional high school athlete doing, you know, cross country running, cross country skiing, uh, track and field in the spring. So it's just always, you know, building and racing, building and racing. Um, and so this, you know, built more of that, that, that base and put in more hours, did longer intervals uh, that, you know, and there was also people like every once in a while, there'd be Torana Hetland coming through there, it'd be Stuart Sievertson coming through there, Froda Steele. So they were all had either just had graduated from there or had a, you know, so they, they weren't necessarily on the every day to day, but, uh, you had people that were, you know, at that time, I think one time I raced Stewie Sievertson and then three days later, like he was fourth in the world cup. So, uh, you know, you, you, you were at an international standard at the age of 18 or you were, you know, racing, you, you figured out what, what, uh, what the speed of what it would take to be on the podium at a world cup at an, at an, an age where you didn't know where it was three months before that. Nowadays, 
and I think at that time too, but even more nowadays, pretty much everyone in Norway speaks close to perfect English. When you were there, did you speak English with your classmates and clubmates? Or did you speak Norwegian with them in the school? And you know, how was that? Yeah, so I mean, school was 100% Norwegian. So it was just really, uh, you know, you just drop in and have to have to learn. Um, definitely people when you're like one on one, they, they like to, to practice their their English. Um, but when you got in a group of more than two or three people, then it was totally Norwegian. So it was, it was absolutely sink or swim. And so, uh, yeah, I did, a, I did, a, I think, a pretty good job uh, learning Norwegian in, in two or three months was, you know, pretty fluent. I think, you know, I never totally lost the accent or whatever. But I mean, I was, I was taking, you know, physics courses and, uh, and yeah, able to, you know, have conversations and watch Champions Leagues with, uh, with the boys on, on Wednesday nights. So, yeah, it was I look back with, on it with uh, absolutely if I would do something like that again, and I'd say for sure. So here's a question for you. I've been in this situation before in German and in Spanish where you're in such an emergent situation. At least I start thinking in the language, but sometimes prematurely because my Spanish or my German at the time weren't good enough to actually think in the language. I'd talk of my sleep in that language. I'd think in the language, but because I wasn't very uh, fluent in the language, I was stupid thinking in the language. Did you ever have an experience like that with Norwegian? What I, what I remember is uh, when I woke up from a dream, like after like in, in the middle of the night and, uh, and I was just thinking in, in Norwegian then. And I was like, oh man, okay, this is something new. Then yeah. I, was, I was like, okay, I think I'm on a pretty good place here with, uh, with the language when, when your default turns to, to the other language. Yeah. I guess I'm prone to that, but um, but at the time when you were thinking in Norwegian, was your Norwegian good enough to think in? Because that's what that was happening to me. And I found that <laughs> until I got to a certain point, I was pretty stupid in, in the language, not just when I'm speaking it, but I was thinking in it. Mm-hmm. I, I guess one thing I, I, I think I had a pretty okay, I was like, I'm just going to start talking and not really worry about, you know, the, 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 the you know, the little tiny fineness of the, of the language. So I was, yeah. you know, me talk, you know, me talk pretty one day type of type of thing. Uh, so, um, and just start really learning. I mean, I, I just felt like I have to learn by, by doing. And, and then when you start doing that, it comes a much quicker. Yeah. If we fast forward half my life now, I've been in, I've been in Switzerland, I think three and a half or four years. And uh, I'm in the, the French speaking part and I'm terrible. <laughs> I'm just terrible. So it's, uh, um, I work all day in, in English to talk with, um, in English, most of my friends are expats. So, um, yeah, I think it's about if you really want to, yeah, you've just got to really go 100% into it. Um, so, I was going to ask you about this later, but since you brought it up, French French-speaking countries, for example, France and, and the French-speaking part of Switzerland are famous for pretty much only speaking French. And if you don't speak in high-quality French, they pretend to a great extent to not understand you. I could see that being a challenge where if you were in the German speaking part of Switzerland, the Italian part, they generally speak five languages and it's a piece of cake, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, how has that been? You just said it was difficult, um, but have you noticed that they pretty much only speak French? Yeah, so I mean, I, for me, it's my, to be honest, my, my, my German's stronger than my French right now. So. Uh, cool. I, 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 I go one hour, I go one hour east and, and I'm, I'm more able, more conversational with just ran, random people. So, uh, yeah. But, but 
at the same time, the people are also more apt to try to understand you in your German as compared to when you're speaking French in the French speaking part of Switzerland where they might just be like, hey, your French sucks. I don't understand anything, you know, and they don't even try. Is that something you've noticed? Um, I, maybe, maybe that's something, you know, you give me good reasons, Ian, why I've been so bad at learning French. So I'm, I'm liking it. So uh, <laughs> I think really it comes down to, um, yeah, just uh, I just haven't put the, the focus the last couple of years really trying to make that that career transition. But um, but I mean, there, there, maybe there's something a little like subconscious where where you don't feel that you like you said, if you don't really communicate exactly how you want to that, uh, that it's not reciprocated. Um, and so anyways, yeah. But that, it is interesting to observe that that is one of the many cultural differences between the French speaking part of Switzerland and the Italian and German speaking parts of Switzerland. They generally speak four or five languages and, and the other regions, but in the French speaking part of Switzerland, much like most of France, they only speak French, which is, which is an odd thing, I think. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting melting pot for sure. So, yeah. yeah. Okay, let's go back to, let's talk about getting back to the United States and going to the University of Utah running and skiing. You ran real fast. Why don't you impress the viewers with, uh, listeners with some of your, a couple of your times? Well, I'm no, I'm no Ben True, but, uh, but um, yeah, I, went, I think I, I was the state champion for, for, for small schools in Washington and uh, the 800 meters and the four by four and was a couple times second in, uh, in, the, in the one mile run. So my PR is coming out of high school or 416 for the mile and 155 for, for the 800. Um, really coming off of skiing and then having, you know, probably two months of, of running from that. So those um, I guess it was just, high just high school PRs or college? Those, those are high school PRs. Yeah. yeah. Let's talk about University of Utah. Yeah, University of Utah. So, um, yeah, I definitely say that I played, played track and field in, uh, at, at Utah. Um, it was something that, I mean, I just really enjoyed doing. Um, the first year I got there, I actually fractured my femur. So I had six months of, of uh, no, no running. And uh, then I had to get back to double pulling, just like there at uh, Mount Spokane. And so I had six months to, to work on my double pull. And uh, I think it helped make me uh, definitely stronger, try to take that as, you know, like uh, when a setback happens and try to take something positive out of it. And I was definitely, you know, needed to build some, some upper body strength and push the technique in different trains. And so um, I had that. And from there, I think it was kind of started transitioning more definitely to, to skiing, but uh, still ran uh, the equivalent of a 347 for 1500 meters. So about a 405-ish mile and 151 for 800 meters. So um, I could make the finals in what was then the Mountain West Conference. Um, yeah, and it was a pretty short season because we'd get done with, uh, with NCAAs in mid-March and we'd have our conference championships first week of, first week of May. So um, it was quick transition, but um, I just really liked, just really liked the, the team. Um, it was just, a, you know, just, just around a whole different group and, and it's, it's just fun competing, you know? And um, I also felt a little bit less pressure maybe. Um, it was kind of then transitioned to be my second sport, but uh, still, I mean, you just love, you just get in a race and you just want to beat people. And uh, you get that opportunity in, in, in track and field, especially because you can do You can do a couple races even in a, in one competition. Yeah. So I have a question. When you graduated from the U, it seems to me you pretty much were straight on the U S ski team and, and that's who you trained with? Yeah, so I, um, I, I, I was named to the team af after my sophomore year. 
um, going into so my my junior year going into my junior year was was uh, uh, Salt Lake 2002. That that was the upcoming year. So the the spring of 2001, I got named to the the A team because um, I think yeah. I think I finished. Uh, I just did the the pre Olympics and the World Championships, but by those two races, I was uh, had a world ranking in the top 50. So I think that was the automatic criteria for for making the team back then. I didn't mean to imply that was the first time, but it's an interesting thing to consider when people graduate from college, where they go from there. And this was before there were true clubs in the United States for the most part. But it seems like you were already on the team and you pretty much just trained in Utah with US ski team, which isn't really done anymore. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I'd say that was uh, how, how, how the transition was. So um, yeah, that after I, I graduated in 2003, I think, uh, Trond had just been named uh, the, the national team coach. Um, and yeah, so then was training with, uh, with the national team from, from then until 2010. Most normal people graduate from college and then they work a couple of years. And if they're really talented and they work their tails off, maybe then they get named the USD team. And that's, a, that's an interesting transition to kind of analyze over the years where at your time it was pre when the, when the US ski team encouraged a club-based system to now where it's obvious where people are going to go, one of maybe five clubs, and then they, they, they work for that last bit to make the national team. But you, you were already on the team and you walked, walked in and it was more of a seamless, more or less a seamless transition for you, I would say. Yeah, I think there's something to be said, though, having a really strong, you know, club program behind you that you can, uh, you know, that's also there in, a, in addition to. So I think it's when we look at what's happened in, in the U.S. in the last 10, 15 years, um, I mean, it's really commend, commendable what those local communities have done to increase the opportunities for for skiers. So, I mean, I think you got to pull you got to pull from the, the, the clubs, you got to pull from the, the universities, from the schools and because there's only so many resources in the sport. And, and, uh, and so taking advantage of all the opportunities is, is the way that we're going to have to do it in the U.S. I completely agree. That's kind of why I was pointing this out, because that transition is very difficult, and you were able to do it, but usually you can't do it without a club to get you from the collegiate racing level to the national racing level, and then only a few people were able to do it. So that's why I wanted to point that out. Yeah. Here's a question for you. So – you finished top 30 in World Cup and World Championship 34 times individually in your career, including a podium and lots of, lots of highlights. Can you talk about when you first felt that you could truly compete for the podium on the World Cup? Um, I definitely remember when I, when I knew that I, when, when I, I felt like my, my dream unfolding, like when that, that first, those chapters turned to, this is where I, I know this is where I can be. And I was definitely at the Soldier Hollow at the 2001 uh, pre-Olympics. Um, I'd missed uh, making the qualification for the, for the U.S. team spots by one place. So it was the, the first alternate. And uh, the day before the last race, uh, myself, Zach Simons, another guy, Petter, Petter Svensson, uh, we were, you know, doing, we were, uh, we were the forerunners on the, on the, on the racetrack and, uh, Later that night, got the got the call that uh, Marcus Nash got sick and wouldn't be racing tomorrow. And uh, would I be interested in starting? <laughs> so I was like, absolutely. And uh, yeah, next morning got picked up from my my college dorm and got driven up to Soldier Hollow. And uh, and I mean, honestly, I, I I really had the feeling 
that I belong there, right from right from the warm up to you know into the race into the start pen. Just have those really good like energy excitement, uh, but uh, not like this awe that uh, that oh my gosh I'm competing against you know uh, yeah the, the top racers at that at that time. And uh, I qualified eighth, and then and then we we, we qualified back then. It was sixteen people that would make the rounds. And uh, I think I was leading or I was in second place behind, uh, was it maybe Rene Sommerfeld or, or Fred, Freddie Slickenby reader, some of these, these old names, blast from the past type of thing. It was Christian Zorzi. All I know is Christian Zorzi and, uh, and, uh, and um, another uh, one of the Austrians that uh, won a medal at the Olympics and got it taken away was behind me throughout the, throughout the race until right at the finish line. So um, yeah, I felt you being there like both qualifying and being within you know a, a short period of the I think like Toby Onger and uh, Tobias Fredrickson you know they were kind of the two top qualifiers there and and then being in the race and being able to match them toe for toe and made you made you know that uh, yeah I think I can do this uh, a few more times. Cool. Yeah. Well how about let's build on that how about um, if you wouldn't mind highlight a couple of races from your career that were particularly meaningful to you they don't necessarily have to be world cup or olympic races they could also be juniors or whatever whatever was meaningful to you that you want to highlight yeah um, yeah i mean since we're talking like world cups definitely i mean uh it's always been my my goal to to get a podium on the on the world cup and and otapa for that to, to come together was 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 pretty sweet um i definitely have remember we had raced in rabinska russia the the weekend before and uh, for one, Keegan, uh, that was the first time Keegan had ever been on the podium. But I just remember being there at the finish and, and seeing some of the guys that were, I'd, I'd lost out, I think, in the quarterfinals. And I was just like, then really like studying, analyzing them. And also had that feeling where I was like, you know, these guys aren't better than me. I think I can do this. Like, I, I just didn't totally, it wasn't a bad race in, in Rubinsko's, you know, probably 15th on the World Cup or whatever. But uh, I just had that feeling like, man, and I, I need to get into that. I need to get into the semifinals, finals, and uh, and mix it up. And I and I kind of came out of that with that that feeling that that I could make that happen. Um, actually, interestingly, then we went to Otapa, and it was um, totally man-made snow, and it was like the hardest snow I've ever skied on. And we did some hard intervals, and and I and I hurt my hip, and uh, I didn't know that I was going to be able to ski until. Um, really until the race day. So I had a couple days where I was just getting massages and trying to get uh, my, my leg working back together again. And I don't know if that was everything like that. I was in really great shape and then just had to take a two or three day enforced rest and really couldn't do anything. But uh, yeah, and it just came together quite well that day. And um, it's just, it's just cool to classic stride and, and be able to hammer up hills. It's, uh, it's something that we skiers, we get experience that other people in sports just don't. Yeah, absolutely. So have you had any uh, memorable team sprint? Team sprint's an exciting event. Um, any team sprints you want to highlight in your career? Yeah, I mean, team sprints, to be honest, is my, is my favorite race. I felt like that was, uh, I mean, obviously sprinting is, is something kind of in my, I guess, DNA a little bit, but I always felt that I could go a little bit more the more the distance. And um, yeah, and I think it's also where both uh, Andy and myself, that's when we're first started seeing that we could really be, you know, close to getting podiums, probably starting in, I don't know, 2000, 
four or five. I think we made a top a top ten there in uh, in, in Canada. Um, but it was always interesting to race in in Dusseldorf. Um, it was not my favorite course, except for when we sprint we do sprint relay in the individual sprint. I would just get hammered. Um, uh, but then in the team sprint, it was just it was like turn the page, something new, and uh, yeah, and we were we were on the podium or the minor podium uh, a couple times. And the time that we got fourth uh, was actually a crash that took uh, Andy out, and I think his next to last or his last lap and um but we were able to you know still be almost there on or be in a like a, a photo finish for for the podium super yeah you won seven u.s individual u.s national championship titles and one canadian championship title of these eight six were in the sprints which were your specialty of course the other two were a 30k master classic and a 50k master skate in the past, if, if a sprinter, someone who's a sprint specialist for the most part, is going to do well in a medium distance race, like a 15K, it's, it'll, it's generally always a classic race from what I've seen, you know. Um, so for me, winning this 50K mass start on a, on a championship course was something really unusual and special. Can you talk about what happened there and how you were able to compete on, against high quality competition on such a difficult course for, for 50Ks and over a skate? Yeah. So, I mean, so that was in, at the, at the Whistler Olympic course. So I think this was a couple years after that. And it was my first time going back to Whistler since the Olympics. Um, and if we go back even a little bit further before then, um, like you said, I usually have been sprinting, but uh, I, I think it was the winter of 2008, uh, did the 50K Classic and at the, on the Whistler course and finished second and was chasing down Babikoff and there were some good Swedes and Norwegians that it came over there as well to to test out the course. Um, so I guess I had good vibes from the course from then, and I, I came to came back to Whistler after having raced on the World Cup for the first time in in uh, three years, over three years, and had been top thirty on the in a distance race one or two, and then uh, I think I had a, like a top fifteen in the in the in the in a sprint. So I think I, I was in a in a place where I mean I knew I. I thought I could, you know, mix it up with, with anybody. And uh, also when you're in a mass start race and feeling good, uh, anything's possible. And you're just going to follow the move and, uh, and have that place where you're going to drop the hammer on everybody and, and hope it's enough to hold you to the finish line. And yeah, and on that day it was, it was enough. So um, yeah, it was definitely, I, I really liked that I was able to go back to Whistler and, and have that be like my final, final race there. Do you, do you agree with what my premise is, which is why I asked the question, which was, it seems like sprinters in general are more competitive in classic distance races than they are in skate. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I, if I see like some of my contemporaries that were, you know, like quote unquote sprinters, um, like uh, Johan Scholstad or, um, or uh, a Pulsa, and, um, you know, they, they, they were then able to be, you know, start podium or even winning some of the, the, the classic, uh, you know, long distance races. And I think that's comes down to one, like we have to be really strong to be sprinters um, and have good technique, but maybe we don't necessarily have like the, the highest VO2 max for that, what you need in those 10, 15 Ks. But it's also something about the, the classic stride itself where it lends a little bit of when you're, when you're skiing it well, where you have like this, you know, stretch and relax uh, that I think, you don't have quite as much of in skating where it's more of a concentric movement. So your muscles 
at least for me, to start feeling a little bit more stiff. And so I think that plays a little bit more to the, 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 the uh, you know, more sprint biased athlete, the, the classic, the long distance classics races. I think so too. And also technically a, a classic sprinter, classic skis, much closer to the way a distance classic skiers skis technically, whereas in skating, a skate sprinter skis much more dynamic with much more of a preload traditionally, mm -hmm. which is more dynamic and faster, but less efficient than the way a distance skater would ski. Obviously people can adjust their, their technique based on the distance that they're skiing. But I've just noticed over the years that classic, uh, that sprinters can be, that they can win world cups in classic distance races, but it's very rare to see someone competitive in a skate race, which is why that jumped out at me. Yeah. I agree with your assessment, Ian. <laughs> you're, you're, a, you're a student and an expert of the sport. <laughs> um, I want to give you an opportunity to talk about a couple lowlights in your career, if you want. Uh, from my perspective, they were all political in nature. In 2010, despite being wicked fast, you weren't named to the national team, which was a, a shock. Additionally, you were disqualified, in my opinion, completely controversially in Rumford at the national championships in the sprint race, which you won and found out afterwards that you were disqualified. Is there any comment you wanna make regarding that? Either one of those? I mean, I, it was, you know, if we look, I mean, back to 2010 and, uh, you know, I'd, when, I, when, I, when I, I mentioned about, you know, going back to Whistler and that was my first time being back on the World Cup, you know, my last World Cup uh, before then, it was, uh, was in, was in Canmore and I qualified second in the world cup and finished or in, in the classic sprint and then finished 11th. And then, you know, for over three years, I didn't get the opportunity to race another, another world cup. And it's, yeah, I mean, it, it definitely feels like part of my, my career was, you know, put on hold. Um, I mean, three years, over three years of, uh, you know, in the prime of your life is, a uh, the prime of your, your sports career is, is, a, is a tough one to take. And, um, but I mean, when you, what, you, what you take from that is the, the people that are in your corner. And um, I also then, you know, had to look forward for different opportunities. Um, and also maybe it's just a little bit like when I talked about going to, to Norway, it was, a, it was a time for me to, you know, grow further as a self. So I went back to school, um, you know, I, I then was able to work with both the Swiss national team. Um, I would come back, I would come over here in the fall and, and uh, train with them in, in Davos. And, and I also had a club team in, in Norway that I could race for. And uh, I started uh, training with, uh, with Dragon and uh, the Bridgers Ski Foundation. And yeah, I had another guy really in my corner, Petter Hagen, that was a, you know, part of a, what's called the Sushon uh, ski team, which was the first professional t ski team in, in Norway. So I was kind of pulling things uh, all together and in only a way that I think that, that I could for, for myself at that, at that time. And so, yeah, I think from that, I built some, some real relationships and that, you know, I'll have for the rest of my life that you not necessarily have when you're just going to do the same thing that you have for the last seven, eight years, and you're going to do for the next three, four, five years. Yeah. So it sounds like that was probably the, the, the positive lesson that came out of this. Was there any other positive lessons or self-discoveries that came out of that hardship? Um, I mean, anytime when you, like, I tried to just, I mean, how do you grow in the, like when you're, when you're in a situation that it, that is really tough and it's just, 
if I'm ever in a position of, of power, like I feel some people were that one, don't step on people's dreams. Don't tell them that, you know, they're not world-class that uh, that's, you know, that they're not on the trajectory that you think that they should be and, and really put stones in their way. Um, and just really be, I mean, cause at the end of the day, I mean, you know, they're your dreams and, uh, and you're, you're trying to make that happen. And so why, why not? It's not, it's in everybody's best interest to, to, you know, to, to see us skiing succeed. So, um, yeah, it's, uh, it's something that uh, I still carry with me, um, both for the positive and negative. And like I said, where I try to take that is, is really just understanding the, the human side of sport. And at the end of the day, if, um, I don't know, Ian, what you remember from, from your days, but you take back those, those golden memories. I mean, you definitely remember when you, you know, when it was ripping at Lake Placid and it was a hard, hard skate race and, uh, and you're, you're just dropping the hammer on all the other boys, but you probably also remember the time with Anya or with, uh, you know, the different people that you, you got to meet through your, your ski career. Oh, absolutely. I've, I've got, um, I think if I look at my career, just like most people, but if I want to dwell on negative, you know, experiences and negative lessons, then I've got a whole blocker full of them that kind of be reason to be bitter or unhappy about something. And I've also got a, more than a locker full of fantastic experiences, growth experiences, success stories, um, things to be really grateful for. And I choose to focus on those as well as perhaps the positive lessons I learned from those tougher times. But I, I, my personal, my, my decision has been to not dwell on the, like yours, not dwell on the, the negatives, but just take the positives with me and kind of put the rest of them in the garbage can and move on, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, in some ways I feel like I wasn't able to achieve like totally my ultimate ambition in skiing, but at the same time, you know, it, it brought me around the world. Like you said, allowed me to be among the top three in the, in the world, at least on one day. And, uh, you know, I got to represent team USA four times as well. And, uh, in addition to, I don't know, six or seven world championships. So, um, schemes brought so much in my life. So why not lean into the, into the positive parts? Yeah, absolutely. I've got an odd question for you. Um, I, I just noticed this about when successful athletes retire, seems like most of them never race again. And a few of them, like myself, kind of chuck the pride in the wastebasket and, and race at every opportunity, regardless of preparation or, or um, fitness or whatever, just because you love to race. And I think you, you're a racehorse by, by nature. Um, are you, do you continue to compete in, at some level? Yeah, so I mean, after, you know, after I, I say retired after 2014, um, definitely, you know, decided, okay, not make like a soft transition, but make a, make a, a strong transition to, to the next chapters of my life, which included, you know, working for USA Today for a stint, uh, got a cool opportunity with them for a while, and then went back and finished up my master's and worked for the NBC station in Salt Lake. And, you know, so I was really trying to build that, that career, but at the same time, I was like, I mean, I never got to do the Burke Biner. I never got to do all these cool races. Um, so, yeah, the, definitely, especially those last, the, the two years uh, before I came over to Switzerland. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I raced, you know, that's, uh, it was, a, and it was, and I really wanted to take a, a different, a different uh, attitude into the races, a, a little bit more, you know, I absolutely wanted to throttle it when I was there, but uh, I, I really wanted to enjoy the, the, the before, during, and, and after as much as possible as well. Um, yeah. So, um, 
super stoked that I did that. Um, right now I, I do more, um, in the last couple of years, do some running, running races, have done a little bit of, of one or two schema races. Um, so I think I'll keep my hand in, 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 in racing in different areas. Um, and, maybe even put on the, the skinny skis in a race bib here soon enough again as well. In this day and age, are you quite prepared when you jump in a running race or uh, some kind of ski race? Or do you not worry about that so much and whatever happens, happens, you're just gonna enjoy yourself? It, it can be both, it can be both. It's definitely how you're feeling, you know? So sometimes I, I like to, to target something, you know, there's one, let's say, there's a, a big race that, you know, I think it's 25,000 people to, to run in, in, in Lausanne a 10K and 20K that goes all through the, through the city. And definitely uh, a year or two ago, I, I, you know, targeted that and wanted to do well on that and uh, um, got top 10 in the race. And it was, you know, won by a couple of Ethiopians and <laughs> Kenyan that were uh, up ahead, definitely. But uh, I mean, I was in the mix uh, for, for third, fourth place. So it was, uh, so that was cool. So, and, and also other races, sometimes you just, you just hop in because you just, you miss it, you know, like, it's like, oh man, it's like a long lost love and you just, you just miss it. So uh, I've done, I do both. Yeah. Cool. So you raced, this is, um, after you retired, you raced the tour of China in 2016. Yeah. According to an old article that I found, you finished sixth overall, which I think is different from maybe your recollection. So that's why I qualified it. Okay. Yeah. This, this must've been a unique experience racing in China and the tour of China. I'd love to hear more about your experience at the rate at the at this tour in China. In yeah, so the, the tour of China is something I'd heard about uh, many years before I'd done it, and uh, but it was never I think, the good good timing for 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 making it happen because uh, it's kind of in the middle of the season. Um, so I definitely, yeah, I had the I got the invite to go and um, yeah, made it happen. I think it was in the 2016, so a couple years ago. Uh, but it was a it was a blast. It was it was crazy. We were in. Uh, we flew in and we were in a place called Jin, uh, Jilin, uh, China. And, you know, we did a race. And then the next morning, I remember, uh, then we, we drive to like crazy, we were going crazy distance. It really was the tour of China. And, uh, and uh, Holly Brooks was there as well. And she pulled out the, the newspaper and it was about the atomic bomb testing that North Korea was doing. And it was like, it was like 5k away from where we did the ski race the day before. Um, and so, Anyways, it was just, it was just crazy. Uh, I think we did seven different, uh, stages in nine days. And one day we had like an 18 hour, uh, bus transfer into inner Mongolia. Um, but it was, it was awesome. It was, there was a, you know, they just invited a ton of, uh, of international skiers. Um, people like retired like me or kind of emerging, uh, kind of like, you know, OPA or European cup, uh, type, type skiers trying to, trying to make that next, next, next step. And, I guess for the Chinese as well, we bring, we brought, I guess, pretty okay uh, fist points to, to the races for them to help them meet the minimum qualifying standards for, for the Olympics. But uh, I mean, it was wild. It was uh, every night there would be these mandatory parties, which were totally like Chinese style where you had the, the huge table and the food and you could not get away from, from, from the drinking. It was, uh, it was crazy. I was like, you would always try to be, be gone when, uh, when they started bringing out the rice wine, but uh because it was, you were just racing every single day, and and uh, but it was it was yeah, like I said, a, a great race. Anybody, I don't know if they still do that, but if they do, you should definitely think about doing it. And um, yeah, that was actually my last uh, my last fist race. I think I've 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 done, and uh, yeah, so. <laughs> Inter Inter Mongolia is actually in north central China, right? 
Yeah, yeah. You weren't in Mongolia. You were racing in North Central China. That region. We were in North Central China. China. Yeah, 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 yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And and between events, you were taking buses. Taking buses, yeah. So it'd be you know a, a tour bus with I don't know fifty of us uh, skiers on it, and uh, you know we get picked up at seven in the morning and dropped off somewhere else the the next day and uh, and do a race. And it was bitterly cold. Uh, I was not expecting it to be so cold. I'd been to, we'd done a World Cup in Chengchun, China before. And when I was checking the weather before, it didn't look that cold. And then, um, yeah, I wish I'd, I wish I'd prepared differently and brought, uh, brought some colder ground skis. But uh, like I said, it was, an, it was a, a sweet trip. So what else? Doing a tour at all is a unique experience. You know, with racing every day and, and the... Um the transitions from travel from one place to the next between races and so on. It's all, that's a unique experience in itself. But what about the experience that you mentioned the parties was uniquely Chinese, you know, it was so foreign to a regular tour. I'd love to hear about that. Yeah, no, I think it was these banquets that they would have and they were just so, sometimes they were so lavish, you know, it'd be like some Chinese singer that everybody knew and, uh, and they just, they would go on for hours and hours and hours and, uh, um, I mean, it was, it was, I guess, a cool time because you had other, you know, skiers around, uh, people that you, you, got, you got to get to know. Um, sometimes you, you know, go out for, for, for a hot pot like you've never had before in, in Inner Mongolia. Um, so, yeah, I think it was just, it was just the whole, the whole, the whole tour was kind of like a, in a way, a, a greatest hits uh, CD that, uh, that you didn't know that you had <laughs> in the, in the, in the, in the top of the car to pull, pull in the CD player. <clears throat> I saw some pictures of uh, racers on camels after one of the events. Was that one of those things where they made you get in the camel? And what was the situation there with the camels? No, so yeah, so again, back in uh, Northwestern China and in Inner Mongolia, it was after the last race, they were having these like, camel races out in like way out in the, the countryside. Now you're like, you're taking, now you're taking a four by like a crazy four by four with some of the biggest tires I've ever seen. And you're like, where are we going? Where are we taking us? And they were having these camel races out in the snow. And uh, yeah. And so I, I, I didn't get, I didn't get a, I didn't get a hop on a camel, but uh, that's, that's pretty cool that some, some people did. Uh, but it was absolutely wild. I think I, I took some of the best photos I've ever taken just because it was just uh, just such a crazy, uh, it was something like right out of national geographic. So yeah, there was things like that on the tour that were just wild. Yeah, I love it when cultures clash like that and you have an expectation or even if you're, you don't have an expectation, it still surprises you because uh, it's just outlandish. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cool. Okay, let's talk about something else. During your career, sprint racing changed quite a bit. First, I think qualifying was 16 racers and it changed to 32. Um, and it also changed in the number of skiers in each heat. Both of those changes had a big impact on tactics. I think you were tactically savvy throughout your career. Oftentimes you led from the front and you stayed out of trouble. Sometimes you'd be in the back and you'd make a distinctive move and blow everyone away because you had the ability to do that. I would love it if you would give some thoughts on sprint, sprint race tactics. Yeah. I mean, I appreciate that you think I was a, a tactician. I feel like that's something that uh, I had to grow into as my, as my career progressed. Uh, sometimes maybe, you know, to use a baseball analogy, I was maybe that person that could throw that 98 mile per hour heat, you know, just try to keep throw, throw, throw strikes all day long uh, with that. And uh, I think I had to learn to be more of a, of a pitcher with my, 
with, with how I, how I use the speed along the course and, you know, not drag everybody around the whole course and make them, uh, yeah, get a free ride and ride until the end. So, um, something that, uh, grew to to, I think, like about in particular, the, the sprint event, the, the tactics and, and the positioning of yourself in the, in the, in the ski group. Um, in regards to the tactics, yeah, I mean, with when we go from heats of four to to six, and now it's kind of six five four. Um, yeah, I don't know. I don't know about general generalizations, except for I mean, um, yeah, if you can see the people that uh, that feel really confident with with what they with with what they can do, and when they then, uh, I really like to see them then execute their their plan and not be somebody that's kind of on the fence of maybe I should try this or stay in it uh, and, and really, yeah, put their, their mark on the course in some, some unique way. I think to a great extent, you were savvy tactically, domestically for sure, in my opinion, because you had unmatched acceleration in the United States such that you could hang out in the back and if the course was wide enough, you could easily make a move and win easily which made you look like a tactical genius, or if the course, for example, was had some narrower sections where you might be concerned about getting through, you could lead from the front and generally win any, any way and any time you wanted. On the World Cup, it's different. You know, like in Dusseldorf, if you don't get up front, you got a problem because you're going to have a hard time passing except for that one, one corner and that one straightaway between the two laps. You know, that's pretty much it. Yeah. And it's yeah. the same with some of the other courses where, you know, your bag of tricks has to match the course, which has to match your tactics. Um, but anyway, I appreciate your comments on that. I have a different question. Okay, yeah. To my knowledge, you never did any obstacle course racing or, or survival the fittest type stuff or any of that stuff, did you? I, not until last, uh, last October. I did the Swiss, actually talking about racing, not totally on a whim. I did the Swiss uh, National Obstacle Race uh, Series. Cool. Uh, it, was out, it was outside. I was outside Zurich. Um, yeah. Um, interesting enough. Um, so yeah, I finished. I finished second. Uh, but I signed up for the wrong the wrong event. I signed up for the, the the general population, not the the pro event. So I won. I guess the 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 non the non pro event. Maybe I needed a license or something that I I didn't have. But it was a yeah the Swiss obstacle course racing uh, championships. The reason I'm asking is, over the years, of course, you know I've seen obstacle course racing kind of develop as a, as a real sport and um, from survival of the fittest way back in the day to in this day and age, there's all sorts of different types out there. Like, like Steve Austin's skull, skull buster, you know, the whole, all the different types out there. And I was thinking for years, man, cross country sprinters, cross country ski sprinters have a unique skill set where you've got the aerobic fitness that none of those other guys have, but you also have got, very good power and strength to weight ratio. And I was thinking for decades there, man, I wish Torin would jump in one of these obstacle races and tear everyone's heads off. Ian, you should have told me that back in the day, you know, because then I had that, that thought afterwards. It's like, there's actually real money in these obstacle course races and they're, and they're, they're like stars. Uh, and it's like, you know, they, right, right outside your house, they do the, you know, one of the big Spartan races. Yeah. You know, it's, the, it's the course that we ski on all the time. And then we get mad because then they tear it up and put in these huge, mud pits and stuff, but uh, we go out, run out there, ski out there all the time. Why, why did we not do it when there's, I don't know, $15,000 on the line for the, for the winter? So um, I was wondering for decades, because 
you have, you have had this unique skill set, a combination of power, agility, aerobic and anaerobic fitness. And I think you just go out there and blow everyone away with a little bit of, you know, getting used to how to navigate the obstacles and maybe, you know, you have to have good balance too, but generally, you, you know, elite cross hinder skiers have that. So I was, yeah. I was, I was wondering about that because. No, you know, if we're going to talk about missed opportunities, that's definitely a missed opportunity. So any of those uh, kids listening out there, don't be afraid of the mud, get out there and make it happen. Show, show them like, you'll do some real representation for, uh, for cross country skiing. And uh, I mean, yeah, why not be a world champion in, in a, in a second sport? <laughs> yeah. yeah. And it's fun, you know? Okay. Yeah. So tell me about your job. And as I mentioned earlier, for the last four years, you've overseen media and communications for the International University Sports Federation, which is the global governing body of university sports. An example of university sports for listeners is the World University Games, which will be held in Lake Placid, New York, next in 2023. This sounds like a fascinating job to me, so I'd love to hear more about what you do. Yeah, so, um, well, take back a little bit. I came, I came to Switzerland to work for the International Olympic Committee uh, on their athlete program. So they did that for, for one year and then was planning on coming back to the back to, to the US, you know, uh, met a girl, decided to stay, um, and then started working, yeah, for, for the International University Sports Federation and working in the area of media, which is the area where I always wanted, wanted to work. Um, and yeah, probably the, per, the premier event that we have is the World University Games. It's, it's the premier uh, event for university students. Um, it's really cool. I mean, it's, it's the same concept that we all know about having an, an athlete's village where, where multiple sports come together. In our case, it's uh, up to 18 different uh, sports and, you know, come together for, for up to 300, about 300 events over 12 days and, um, you know, in, in a different city and it's all, it's all college athletes. So everybody's under 20, from 18 to 25 and, and the, the level of competition in particular in certain events is, is, can be as high as, as anywhere. Um, and when you talk with the athletes, what they like about it is it's a little bit of a more chill vibe than if they're at the world championships, world cup or, or Olympics. So you'll, you'll, we have sometimes some people will set, uh, you know, world records or, or different, uh, different records like that. So there's been some great performances in particular in swimming and, and, uh, athletics that have happened there. So I understand about the world university games. What does your day to day look like? Cause those don't happen that often. Yeah, so day to day, I mean, we, we also, in addition to those that happen, the summer and winter games happen every two years. Uh, we have what are called World University Championships. We have, we're supposed to have 30 of those this year, but COVID then uh, kicked all but uh, one, and then we did a couple virtually. Um, and then in addition, so we are, we are an international federation. So um, we're, we are the, you know, the NCAA, for example, is one of our partners and the, you know, the different divisions of the, of the NCAA. So we got we to gotta keep our membership in, engaged. And so we also have to do some of the corporate communications that way. So it's a, it's a job where, honestly, I, I, I don't know what's going to happen most, uh, most days of the week. And you just have to, like, chuckle and be like, okay, my, my game plan for the day just got blown out. And I'm now going to have to run down this area. But with that being said, Ian, it's, it's interesting, like, how much it takes to put on a big event. So our our biggest events, let's say with athletes and coaches is around 10,000 people to put all this together is, you know, it's, it's years in the planning. Um, on our side, it's a little, we're a little bit scrappier and, you know, we can make that happen quicker and under different circumstances. But I mean, having worked at the, the IOC and 
I mean, they're on a seven year cycle with the, with the games and they're, they're doing stuff all the time. And uh, so that's been an eye opening experience, just how, how it is to put on these really, really big, uh, really big events. So you live in Lausanne. Do you live in the city? Uh, yeah, I live, I live right next to the university. So I'm like from the city center, three, four K away. Most people have no idea what kind of amazing quality of life as well as recreational opportunities the Swiss Alps offer. Lausanne offers, in my, from my view, city-sized employment opportunities and, and city-sized culture opportunities combined with Swiss Alp recreation not very far away, just a little bit away. Can you describe, just give the vision a little bit to people because I, very few people understand what kind of a quality of life an outdoors person can have there. Yeah, so, so I'm in, in Lausanne. So uh, if you know Geneva and Lake Geneva, I'm, I'm located on the other side of the lake from there. Um, it's dark now, but if we looked across the, there, 12K away would be uh, Evian, and then we'd have the, the, the French Alps and, uh, and also, you know, like Mont, uh, Mont Blanc and stuff would be just right behind my side. Um, in addition to that, we also have uh, the Jura, not very far away. So I actually didn't even know what the Jura were <laughs> until I, until right before I came here. And, uh, and so that's where the Transjurisien, trans uh, <laughs> again, my French not coming out so well, uh, where, that, where that takes place. So we have really kind of like two, two mountain ranges kind of converging along uh, the longest lake in, in Europe. And yeah, it's, it's incredible for, in particular for, for road bike riding. That's um, these days, that's probably my, my go-to way to unwind and, and do sport and uh, yeah, and go, go ride, ride many, many kilometers with, uh, with buddies. And yeah, it's a lot of, there's a lot of big mountain passes to, uh, to be climbed around here. Do you, when you road bike, do you focus more on the, what they call in German anyway, the Vorhalpen? Like the stuff around Gruyere and like that whole area? Or do you go, do you go up um, into Valles, like more, more that direction and take some of the big passes? So, if we, I mean, if I'm going to do a big pass, like you're saying, in, in the Valle region, I would, uh, because to get there, it would be somewhere between 60 or between, yeah, it's probably 60 to 80K to start. So I probably would need to uh, take a train and then, and then you can tackle some of those bigger, bigger rides. Um, there's place of, places in uh, the Port du Soleil network, so the second biggest uh, alpine network in, in the world outside of uh, Dolomiti Superski. And I can go from my house and go climb up, you know, to, um, up to Morjan or, or somewhere like that uh, and make a, a, a day route out of it, you know, in 130K and uh, 1,500, 2,000 meters climbing and, and do it in four or five hours. Uh, but to do, you know, if we're talking more, to get up, like you said, into the Valle region, Sonich, some of those really famous uh, climbs. Uh, early, early morning train ride <laughs> is usually in the cards. Have you been exposed to a train system, anything comparable to the, the Swiss train system in terms of the punctuality, the convenience, et cetera? I mean, it's, a, it's, pretty, it's pretty cool. I mean, you can definitely survive without a car. Um, and yeah, I mean, for, you can be from the main station and be at a really great ski resort in, in less than an hour, or you could be somewhere like, you know, a ski resort where you dream of skiing at like, uh, like Verbier and then within an hour and a half. And yeah, you just hop on a train and maybe you have to make one transfer. So it's, uh, it's not too bad. And you get dropped off right, uh, right at the telecabin. As you might know, I spent a lot of time in Switzerland and 
one of, one of our little jokes that we're always joking about is the, the image of a conductor driving into a train platform with this utter look of shame on his face. And the, uh, because five minutes previous over the announcement, you know, the PA system, they announced that the train was going to be four minutes late. And, you know, it pretty much uh, committing Hari Kerry on the way in, you know, totally ashamed of himself arriving four minutes late. And everyone's looking at their watch and, you know, kind of pointing at him like, you prick, you know. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's, it's something that is really, I don't think that you can experience that anywhere else in the world. The Swiss are so punctual and, and the trains are so exact and the expectation is so prevalent, you know. Yeah, no, no, no. I think that, and that carries its way through through anything and in, in the day to day life. What you what you see there, um, I don't want to be late. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Might as well almost not show up if you're going to be more than, especially more than five minutes late. Did you? Uh, the, the Youth Olympics were just down the street from you, more or less, and they were centered in Lausanne. The Nordic events were in the in the Euro area that you were describing, I think. Yeah, yeah, in the Euro. Yeah. Yeah. Um, did you did you go out there and check out the events? Um, I didn't see enough of it, but uh, the one thing that was really cool was just seeing in the in the city center how much it came alive, um, and they really did an, uh, an interesting job for anybody that wants to really, I think, study with how to pull in like the local population into into you know doing sport alongside sport. It was uh, fascinating. They put down like these. I remember hearing stories way back in the day about Bill Koch and where he wanted to take ski and it was laying down like refrigerated ski tracks and I don't know, maybe run, running through Las Vegas and they, it wasn't uh, refrigerated, but, you know, they had the, these plastic tracks and uh, they had a uh, ski mountaineering and they had a course that you could, you know, ski on the streets of, of Lausanne. And, you know, so there's people just doing anything from that to, to uh, getting tested while they're bobsled pushing the timing. And uh, so it was really, interesting to see how they were able to engage the local community and get them stoked on, on sport in a really cool way. Um, I didn't get to see enough of the, the competitions. I went up one day to the big air uh, competition. Um, and also for my job, I was then checking out how they run the, the in particular, the main press center mm. in the, in the city center. You mentioned Bill Koch. You might remember that his son, Will Koch got third in those events. I'm curious what your thoughts are on, how well our U.S. ski team is doing internationally, as well as especially our juniors are incredible. The last two years, they've probably been the top junior team in the world. Um, you obviously, this is near and dear to your heart, and you've 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 fought and fought. What are your thoughts on this? I mean, those kids are crushing it. That's all. That's all I got to say is they're just straight up crushing it, and it's uh, it's really cool to see. And I mean, I'm not around. You know, I'm not in I'm not in the local community. I'm not on like where the, where these kids are skiing. So I don't. I, can have, I see it from a little bit from afar, but uh, what I see, how they, they, they talk about it, how they, looks how they approach it, um, looks, looks absolutely right. And I think they're on the right track. And it's, it's I mean, it really is. And there's never been a better time to be a, an American cross-country skier or biathlete. Yeah, for sure. So here's a, a question to provoke you a little bit. Um, looking back at your ski career, is there anything that you would do differently were you to do it again? Is there something you think you did particularly well or, or the opposite? Ooh, you're making me look back with, a, with an, uh, an eye of regret. Um, or, or not, or celebrate something. Yeah, so I mean, well, I think there's, I mean, there was always opportunity, right, to do something a little bit better. 
Um, and I think maybe in, in my later part of my career, like I mentioned, uh, you know, working with some of the different national teams and, 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 and club teams in, in, in Europe, which, you know, was just opened up some different opportunities. I think if I had that uh, mentality from the time I went to Norway to, you know, until kind of that age after Norway until I was 29, 30, I didn't do that as much. And growing up in, you know, a town like Leavenworth, a small town, there's not a lot of, you know, it's not the, the huge infrastructure for skiing. It would have been cool to, to make a, if not a, like bring, invite some of the top skiers over and have them train with you and, uh, and put on a little training camp and, and vice versa that way. So I think I would just keep on, it would have extended that, that olive branch a little bit more and uh, just try to build the, you know, the community and, uh, and the opportunity for, for myself to train with the best in the world even more. Let me, let me, um, ask you something if you look at Andy Newell who was you know you guys had parallel careers for many years there he grew up in southern Vermont went to Stratton competed in the U.S. ski team came back eventually to Stratton and, and, and um, competed more or less in southern Vermont and trained in more or less in southern Vermont his whole career and he had his support network there the entire time people that supported him when he was a kid all the way as a junior as a senior he never left the nest, so to speak, in his support network. In comparison, you probably more than anyone else were more or less a lone wolf. You, you didn't necessarily have a system of support in the Leavenworth area or the Wenatchee area that could, you know, there was no elite ski program or club. So you were in Bandabit, you were in Bozeman, you were in Park City, you were here and there. And I'm not sure you ever because of that, develop um, that that support network and being in your element, you know? Mm -hmm. Do you think that had a, had a, had a negative effect somehow? And, and that's what you're searching for in Norway and in Switzerland and so on, I think. Yeah, so I mean, I, I guess there's, a, everybody has certain opportunities um, and, and certain uh, things that they got to try to find, uh, you know, the best, the best route forward. And, um, you know, for me, I, I tried to do the best of what I could with the, the opportunities that I had. And so I can't look back too much uh, with regret. Um, you know, there, I guess there's some tennis players that work with the same coach from the, their, the year that they're like pick up a racket to tell their, tell their end. And there's other ones that, you know, have to, you know, that, uh, that don't. Um, so I think that's something we see uh, across sport. I guess skiing is a little bit of a, it's such a challenging sport and there's so many different uh, convergence to so much, coming together you know you got the equipment you got the you, know, you have to have the waxing the coaching the, the travel to the events uh, access to learn really what that 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 top speed really looks like and um yeah if if what i had to do is uh you know search out a, a way to make that work for me then I, I could do the best that i could with the the situation i had and like i said i think i probably gained some things along the way that have helped that have helped me um make that tradition, make that next chapter of my life happen. And I think, you know, sometime if I come back to the sport, you know, more, I will have some experience that would be different than somebody that necessarily grew up in a, in a community that, you know, that could support and develop them from, from the, you know, Bill Coke, UC Ski League all the way to, to, you know, when they're, they're training for world championships. So I didn't mean to imply that I felt that you made bad decisions. I didn't mean that one bit. Oh yeah. What I was what I was trying to get at was it seemed like 
kind of you were geographically challenged. You know, in one way, in one sense, where you grew up is <clears throat> very optimal in terms of outdoor recreational opportunities and, you know, snow and you could ski in a bunch of different places. But <clears throat> in terms of your development as an elite athlete, you basically had no one that you could train with or bang heads with in training in that area and perhaps not the coaching expertise at that level either. And so you went to band, you went to um, Bozeman, you were in Norway, you were in Switzerland, kind of searching for that as compared to someone who grew up in Anchorage, you know, with Winter Stars and APU, you've got it all like right there. Or in Northern Vermont, you've got people that, uh, that some of the women, they grew up skiing in Craftsbury when they're little kids, and then they were coached there as adults, same with Southern Vermont and so on. So I was just kind of curious about your perspective on that. And I'm not saying you didn't deal with it well. I think you did. You know, you were, you were finding your, your people and so on. And you're still, uh, you clearly benefited from your time in Norway, for example, I think. And yeah. Scott so, I mean, Johnson was a great coach for you, I think, too. Huh? So, yeah, no, I had a lot of, a lot of good people to, to, to help make it all come together. Yeah. Okay. Um, it's been a few years since you raced. But I was wondering, so you, you're not familiar with some of the more, more recent Toko gloves, perhaps, because you, you're in Europe. But um, I'm curious what, if you have a favorite Toko glove model and why. Oh, forever. I think I'm going to be the profi kind of guy. Yeah. Uh, I, I love it. So don't ever let that go out of, go out of style or uh, out of discontinue. And if you do, um, save 10 pair for me, Ian. <laughs> you'll have, a, you'll have a, a Thanksgiving feast awaiting you in, in, in return. No plans on that, but I do have some dramatically different graphics for next fall, which I think are going to be very popular and exciting. Cool. So what do you know now that you wished that you had known when you were 18? This doesn't have to be ski related, anything. Uh, so I mean, if we're going to keep it on the ski, the ski vibe, um, whatever you do, like when it's going to go best is, is got to play with full confidence. When I look back at, you know, when, uh, when it went well, um, yeah, or like just how you approached everything, just approach it with, uh, with the idea that, that you're going to, you know, you're going to, one, you're going to give it your best effort and two, you're going to, you're going to, you're going to do it with you stop taking that step forward and, uh, and, and really being excited about what's to come and, and being open to the possibility that, that you're going to totally, you know, dominate or that you're going to fall on, you know, you're going to blow up uh, and, and be cool with that. And just know that it's at the end, ski racing is kind of a science experiment and you, you know, you get that, you get a chance to, to have a hypothesis, uh, play it out and see, see if you were right or not. So um, I think when you kind of go into it with that, that type of attitude, um, you can kind of take the, I don't know, maybe it's just, it's not like a, an, it's not as hard on your ego. Maybe you're like, ah, ah I just, uh, I, I played that wrong. I played that, that, that card wrong, but that's, Hey, I had, a, I wanted to do that. So, um, and you take what you took from that race into the next one and, and, and learn from it. So if I were to try to boil that down in just a few words, are you basically limiting expectations and allowing creativity? I don't know if you're limiting, uh, limiting expectations is I think you're, you're open to, to, to all opportunities and yeah, you're, you are definitely more like creative and you're, you're, because you're allowing that creativity, your, your, your appetite for either extreme success or, or failure is going to be a little bit, uh, going to be a little bit wider. Um, so you're just not playing so tight with your, with your cards. 
Hmm. Cool. I appreciate that. Um, this is an interesting one always. Uh, what is something about you that might surprise people if they were to find out? Oh, man, Ian, I should have read your questions beforehand. I'm coming into these blind now. <laughs> something about me that the... Uh, uh, um, my dream job, I would always tell people, was I wanted to be an investigative reporter for the New York Times. So I'm not necessarily on that, that trajectory right now, but uh, who knows? Maybe, uh, maybe there's still time for me for my third act in my career. I'd love to see that. <laughs> Do you have a mantra or philosophy that can be summed up in a few words? Uh, definitely back in the day, I really liked the idea of, of Sisu, the Finnish word. Um, I didn't, we don't really have a good way to define that in English, but except for I'd say it's, you know, being somebody who has a lot of grit and resolve and uh, yeah, you're gonna take no prisoners. Strength of character. Strength of character, yeah. Having just just having a lot of resilience, I think, and 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 not minding uh, the fight that's going to come ahead of you. And how is that? That's probably one of your stronger character attributes. How has that blessed your life as you have embraced that concept? Uh, so I, I would say, I mean, again, just kind of leaning into what's what's hard, and and one I and what I do have the idea that there's not everybody that has that strength of, of character um, for, for better. I mean, it's both your, your strength and your, your weakness. And also, and one thing I was really interested in, in investigative reporting or whatever I do is, is you wanna, you wanna be able to, to be true to yourself. And if we're talking about, about writing and, and reporting, then it's about being able to tell the, the whole truth, all the truth and nothing but the truth, still with the bark on the wood itself, and um, sometimes you just got to let the cards lay, lay where they are that way. And you, sometimes you're going to ruffle some feathers. But at the end of the day, they need to be ruffled. And so that's um, what we need to, I mean, at the end of the day, to have a very well high-functioning democracy. So I've always felt really strongly about that, that American ideal. And, and, I, and yeah, so I guess that's something that informs the way that I go through my life uh, almost every day. Super. You laid it on us. <laughs> <laughs> well, Torin, um, it's been my pleasure to witness your entire ski career from start to finish, as well as to develop a friendship and a, a mutual you know, cooperation, as well as a, a friendship with you over the years, which I've really appreciated. And um, I'm glad that we've had a chance to, to catch up today. And you look great and, you know, uh, ready to roll. <laughs> um, thank you very much for doing this and I look forward to running into another time. I don't know when that's going to be. No, uh, thank you, Ian. Uh, like I said, not, not too many people I would take uh, and be on the other side of the camera from the, than you. But uh, when you called, uh, I, I felt, uh, yeah, an opportunity to, to talk about some things that I yeah, I haven't talked about for, for some years. And uh, yeah, and if people want to hear it, that's even even cooler. And um, on a personal level, I mean, you've been both for myself and I think for so many other skiers, like such, you know, that, that face that's just happy about the, about the sport and wanting to see people succeed um, no matter where they're coming from. And uh, yeah, for that, uh, thank you so much. Um, and yeah, and and uh, yeah, for anybody else out there, there's not too many other people that uh, that you'd want in your corner than, than Ian. And so, um, 
yeah, and I wish uh, Toko also the best. Um, they've been a great supporter through the years. There's not, you know, you're not going to cross country skiing unless you're maybe a, a couple a couple of people you can say in a in a single name uh, going to make a, a huge career out of it. But um, so having people like you guys um, really helps us to live our dreams. Well, thank you. Of course, it's been my pleasure. Okay. Well, thanks, Torn. All right. Thank you, Ian.